Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Brooke Harris, who is the founder and CEO of Good Milk, a plant-based milk company, which you can find at goodmilk.co. It's milk spelled M-Y-L-K. And in this episode, we go through how Brooke started this company, the difficulties in creating a high-quality almond milk, where she uses six times as many almonds as other companies. I actually tried it out, tried the product, and it's amazing, it's incredible. You can tell the difference right away, which is why it's so difficult to create that. We go through how she overcame that challenge and really built this into a scalable product, how she raised her first 500K in funding, her use of funds after multiple rounds of funding, the educational component that goes along with this product, the challenges that she's had with COVID where she had to switch up her entire distribution strategy essentially, and so much more in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast where you can find links to everything mentioned in this episode. And you can support the show and help more people find out about it by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. I would really appreciate that. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Brooke Harris, the founder and CEO of Good Milk. Brooke, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on and excited to talk about Good Milk and all you've done with this this company. And for people who aren't familiar, what is Good Milk? We are a plant-based milk company and we like to say, you know, we are scaling homemade quality plant-based milk. So what you've had at the store is very different than the products that we're making. With this company, I know I know a little bit about it from doing my research and hearing about it before, but how did this get started in the first place, Brooke? Yeah, I think like any good um, founder journey, a lot of it stems from my own my own need, my own story, um, and certainly a little bit selfish. <laughs> um, I was plant based for a very long time, and um, a few years ago, got got really sick with digestive issues um, that were kind of keeping me down for days at a time. Didn't know what the issue was, um, didn't think to look at my food, spent over a year going to all these different doctors. No one asked me about my diet other than the fact that I was vegan and kind of paired that with, okay, vegan means healthy Um, and came out of it with zero answers. Um, Turns out through some other pathways, I found out that I was eating a lot of processed foods. But I wasn't eating, you know, chips and cookies and burgers. Um, I was eating processed vegan foods that I thought were healthy for me. And one of the biggest um, issues was my almond milk. And I went home, looked at the box and was like, whoa, there's a bunch of ingredients in here that 
I have no idea what they are. <laughs> um, the nutritional yeah. panel makes zero sense. There's no protein and fat in almond milk, but we know there's protein and fat in almonds. And then the fact that it's a liquid and it can sit in my cupboard for you know two years at a time probably yeah. would have been a red flag. Concerning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I like I said, I was vegan at the time and was like, well, what are my options? And I Googled how to make homemade plant-based milks. And beyond the um, nutritional aspects of it, once I tasted the homemade version of these plant-based milks, I was never going back to the store-bought stuff. Oh, that's funny you mentioned the the protein fat in almond milk, but and almonds obviously have that, but it's not in almond milk. And I've noticed that a long time ago. And I I don't I don't drink a lot of almond milk, but I I I've, I saw that one time as I was, and I was like. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm so I'm so confused by that exact point, and I was like, that that's very strange to me. And uh, I'm glad that then someone like you has dug deeper into that. Take me through then understanding that experience that you had with it, uh, your own your own experience with this, and what were some of the first steps you took to then make this an actual company? Yeah, well, I you know I started making it at home, and like I said, the taste was so amazing, but. The process is a pretty big pain in the butt. You one first, you have to find good quality almonds, preferably raw. Um, so you get the almonds, which are expensive. You soak and sprout them overnight, which is kind of a pain in the butt because if you don't time it out right, then your almonds go bad and you have to start over. Um, and then the actual making of the milk, the blending, the the hand pressing, the squeezing, all of that is really messy, and you get very little milk out of it. And if you're like me and you have a husband or he was my boyfriend at the time who can chug a whole quart of milk <laughs> in a matter of seconds, um, you've spent all this time making this this beautiful milk and it's gone in seconds. Yeah. So I saw that there were probably some reasons people weren't making homemade milk at home, but thought maybe there would be some interest and so I, you know, being in LA was very lucky. You and I talked before we, we started recording um, that I just feel like the opportunities that LA lends to um, a startup founder are, are pretty massive. And I wanted to share this with the community. And so I went to the, the, my local farmer's market that I had been shopping at, spoke to the manager and said, hey, can I set up a booth here? She let me set up a booth. And um, that was kind of the start of it all. We were selling a product that had a five-day shelf life. So this fresh homemade product, which as you know, is not scalable at all, but being at the farmer's market allowed us to prove and it allowed us some opportunities. That's how we got into selling to coffee shops also. Um, It allowed us to prove that that end product, that end liquid, there was a demand for it. And then it was me, you know, going behind the scenes once we had proof of concept to figure out how the heck do we scale something like this. Well, let's let's dig into that because it does seem like so difficult to scale that, and yeah, many challenges as you discuss. How did you approach that, then, Brooke? <laughs> yeah. So again, because of my wellness journey, the approach was always, you know, the product had to be the best of the best and had to live up to these standards. It had to be, uh, you know, I think when we're as a food entrepreneur, I feel that it's my responsibility to put out products that are good for my consumer, nourishing them, you know, incredibly transparent, especially in this category of plant-based milks, which 99% of people, I would guess, are switching to plant-based milk or consuming plant-based milk because they think it's healthy for them. So that's kind of always our number one pillar is the liquid has to be 
it has to meet this high quality um, standard and we have to be able to be very transparent um, in, when talking about it. And so that, that just comes with a certain standard as it is. Um, and so we knew we weren't going to, you know, process it in the ways that the plant-based milks in the market are processed. We knew we weren't going to add the gums, the binders, the shelf stabilizers, um, put it in the packaging that, you know, where you have to heat it up and turn it into, you know, you basically like microwave it essentially into the packaging. We knew we weren't going to do any of that. Um, so that left me with very few options <laughs> to naturally preserve a product. Um, and we started looking into blast freezing, which means basically, um, you know, they use it a lot in baking. Um, it freezes the product incredibly quickly. So you don't get any ice crystals, doesn't do any damage to it. Um, and I just started testing that. I was lucky. I had a friend who owned an ice cream shop and had a little blast freezer. Amazing. So she come into the shop after hours and literally test blast freezing the milk in in her tiny little blast freezer it worked (laughs) to the best of our ability to test it right um it worked and that's when i i started talking to some some of our coffee shop partners told them about the concept was like hey if we could do if we could do this would this work for you knowing that you would now not have to worry about shelf life and you'd still get the same fresh product um, and we could expand to your other cities, locations in other cities also. Got some like head nods on that, which was enough for me, you know, as a founder to be like, oh, yep, definitely. This is this is going to work and people want it, um, whether that was true or not. <laughs> um, and that's when we we raised our first funding. Okay. I, de- I definitely want to dig into that, the funding side of it, because I was going to ask. So with that... I mean, take me through with the funding side of it. I mean, what type of traction, maybe how many coffee shops are in, how many, like, what were you at before you raised funding? Yeah. So we had the kind of when the light bulb went off of like, Hey, this is, this is, this makes sense. And I have some, some big partners on board that could kind of back me on this. We, I think we had about 30 or 40 doors of coffee shops and and some pretty big names like Blue Bottle and La Colombe. And Soho House, um, like I said, all had cafes in other cities. So part of the the problem was is we could only service their LA cafes, and this was a great solution to get to those other cities. Um, but we had done by the time we actually did the valuation for our raise, we had done a little over a million. I think it was close to a million and a half in sales. And with the fundraise, then what were you, what were you looking for in terms of the the amount and anything particular in terms of the strategic strategic investors you were looking for? I'm just curious about what you were kind of approaching this fundraise uh, with. Yeah, looking back to my first raise, is, it, it's kind of hilarious how little <laughs> I knew then versus what I know now. And yeah. now knowing what I know, it's like, man, there should be a course or someone who sits down with a, a founder like months before they ever think of raising to make sure they understand what it all means and how to be thinking about it, you know, 10 years in advance. Um, but I, I was so green that first raise. Um, (laughs) (laughs) even some of the words, the language like was a foreign language to me. Um, um, but it, it went well. I got really lucky that people saw the vision. You know, again, this is another reason I lo- have loved building a company in LA is a lot of the people who invested in the, the first, the early days had um, 
they had had the product. They were already fans of the product from going out to coffee shops or, you know, some of them, one of our investors, her mom was a, one of our farmer's market customers and was had been obsessed with our milk and like her refrigerator was always stocked. So <laughs> a lot of the people I approached early days with our first and second round already knew the brand, already knew the product and loved it. And then I just had to sell them on the business side. How long did that first race take you, Brooke? I got incredibly lucky and this is not ever how it goes. So um, <laughs> my, my first raise, we raised um, 500,000, um, which at that time was like, whoa, that yeah. felt like so much. You know, I had bootstrapped the company um, with basically just, you know, like literally like $1,500 that I had in the bank when I started. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so $500,000 I thought was going to last forever. Um, and it really only took us a few months. Um, I had, we had one group come in and end up taking the whole thing. So that was really great. But that teed it up also to make our next raise go really fast because I had already started conversations with people and then someone took the whole thing. So people were ready and excited for the next raise when that happened about a year later, um, and that one went pretty quickly as well. And and with that too, so you had bootstrapped to like a million and a half in sales or something before you even got funding, which is great. I mean, that's if someone can bootstrap by all means. Getting to that point, talk talk me through the distribution side of it. How are you acquiring customers early on, even to get to that point? Yeah, it's we were thinking about it very differently than we think about it today. Where now that we have um, investors behind us and we are, you know, we have a really clear plan to scale. We, we only do things that allow us to scale today. So back then we were still serving this fresh product. You know, we, it was kind of a mix of um, home delivery. Like think of your, like the old school milkman. So we were doing some of that, which was really cool and fun for a while, but again, not super scalable. Um, we were doing, we were in a couple farmers markets that were killing it and amazing and built such a beautiful base of customers and, and friends really in the LA community. And then our biggest channel, um, which is a channel that we still love and feel very strongly about today was B2B. So selling into these coffee shops, restaurants, hotels, um, as part of their food service program. So if you go into um, a blue bottle in Southern California and order an almond milk, latte, cappuccino, whatever, you name it, it's made with good milk. Um, And that's been a really cool and fun channel to play in for us. With that distribution, I know I say it evolves from the the early days and there's always the whole like masters of scale doing things that don't scale early on. There's many stories about this, Airbnb being an example, Uh, even like thinking about Another person I had in the show, Vanessa Du from Healthy Kombucha, uh, doing things like the farmer's market and everything like that initially to kind of get those those first customers. You figure out more things and then you can scale and, and kind of grow beyond that. With the with that initial funding, the 500K you, you raised then, what was that going towards for you at that time? So we, when I raised that funding, this, this frozen, what you see now, if you go to our website or, you know, if you happen to, to see the product behind the scenes in any of our ca- cafes, um, what we have now is this, these really cute frozen concentrate packets. Um, yeah. But when I pitched that first round, I, we didn't have those. That was the idea. I had never tested it in the blast freezer that we would need to buy to scale, I'd never tested it in the packaging that was in my head that I wanted to use because you have to buy 10,000 units at a time. Exactly. (laughs) So it was this theory that in theory, I 
thought would work and had tested it to the best of my ability, but we didn't have anything, any of the equipment to make it or scale it or any of that. And so that first round went into buying the equipment, buying the packaging, um, and then getting some distribution. So we were, um, we were self-distributing everything because we had products that had a five-day shelf life. So we yeah. were able to get distribution for the first time um, through actual distributors, expand to Southern California, like out of LA to Orange County and kind of test all that and prove that frozen plant-based milk wasn't crazy because <laughs> my first few sales meetings showing up with, pa- I was so gung-ho and like thought, I remember when the packaging came in, the day it came in, I had a team meeting and I literally cried in the team meeting <laughs> and I'm not, I'm wow. not a super emotional person, but just like, I was so clear on the path for this and the future for this. My team, not so sure, uh, <laughs> which I do not blame them. And then also when I showed up to those first few meetings, I was just so gung ho and like, was like, everyone's going to think this is genius. This is like going to be perfect. It solves so many problems. And that was not the reaction in those first few meetings. So um, we, we put some, some time and effort and money certainly behind the educational process um, those, those first few months. Um, But once we got some of our partners on board, they really did love the logistics and the process and the less packaging and all of the benefits that came along with it. On the mental side of things, Brooke, when you have this vision that you're so sure about, but you're getting these signals from people who who kind of they're doubting, they're not sure, you know, for many reasons, what helps you continue on, or what helps you continue on, and just know that look, this is this is going to be a thing. I'm, I'm trusting myself. Like, what is it that helped you get through that? Yeah, I think the you know the founder mentality, for better or worse, that I think the type of person that goes into these things, like probably has a higher level of self-confidence than the average person. And I've, you know, in, intuitively, I, I just knew there are some things in life that you just know. And I, I just had that feeling that I, there weren't many things that were going to rock, rock <laughs> that, um, me wavering, but certainly, um, as the winds come in from, from outside people or, or outside brands, um, getting excited about it, that's when you're reassured, like, like always just the moment where you're about to doubt it. And then there's <laughs> reassurance that, that kicks in from an outside source. Um, so we've been really lucky with that with like, oh, I'm just about to be like, maybe I am crazy. And then someone else who is more important says, no, 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 that's a great idea. And we'll bring it on. Um, those moments seem to come at always just the right time. It's funny you mentioned that. I'm just hearing from a number of obviously different entrepreneurs in this show and hearing the conviction people have to make their make their things work. There's there's always just that one note of uh, survivorship bias, like people who have created successful companies and had the conviction. Yes, but there are always people, many many other companies that didn't make it for people who had that same conviction. So it is, it's it's fascinating to see entrepreneurship and what it can be because you have to have that, but at the same time, there's going to be a number of these companies that don't make it, that don't end up being that. But uh, you have to have that conviction in order to have a chance because for whatever reason, better or worse, a lot of entrepreneurs are disillusioned and that, that disillusionment <laughs> helps them build their company, right? Like that's that's the reason why like it wasn't around before and now it's a thing because you believed in it. And it's so right. cool to see that and obviously the execution side of it as well. And and one thing just to go back to you real quick before we move on to a lot of other questions I have, with getting those initial dis- distribution into, I mean, Blue Bottle, into Solo House, I mean, 
what were those conversations like? Because I know it was other people who were going to be thinking, wait, you got in a blue bottle or you got in a Soho house? Like, how did yeah. you do that? What were you What were you saying at that time? Yeah, well, that's where, you know, we talk internally about our different advantages as a company. And the biggest, most important one to me is the quality and the taste of the product. And that's where I could, you know, talk circles around all the benefits in a sales meeting and, and the logistics and this and that. But once you taste the product and experience it in a latte for these places in our sales meetings, my number one rule is we do not leave the meeting without them having tasted it and made it into a latte or, you know, whatever type of drink they want in front of us, because that's when it blows people out of the water. And if you're talking to a, you know, we're very um, thoughtful about the coffee shops that we're talking to. Also, they have to have certain certain pillars that match up to ours and certainly quality is one of them. And so if you're talking to a coffee shop that, you know, these coffee shops care so much about the beans, they go to the fields and source them and the roasting. And it's it's such a process to get that coffee in the perfect co- cup of coffee. So if these co- cafes have done all of that work, then when they taste our product and know it's the best product they could ever pair with it, like it just sells itself. Yeah, it goes to the self-awareness of understanding where your kind of USP is, your unique selling yeah. point. And like that's there's so much to be said with that and understand that then who your potential partners are going to be based on that. And uh not necessarily easy, but easier then to have that fit with it. And and one thing you mentioned as well, going back to the, the fundraising side real quick, you mentioned obviously the five hundred K and then you raised your next round. Uh how did the next round differ? And how how is that different for you going through you know your next round of funding? Um I know there's entrepreneurs who are obviously getting to that first round is is great, but it's never easy. How did that next round go for you? How what are the differences for you? Yeah, the next round was, you know, certainly I was more educated. Um, it was we were raising a bigger amount. Um, we had some some clearer goals with it, or we at least had like a product in hand and proof of this new this new concept working. Um, and I knew that I was looking for some strategic partners too. You know, we weren't raising enough to have these massive strategic VCs, but even from the angels, the smaller VCs and the family offices, we wanted to understand that was part of the conversation. Every conversation was great. Here's the spiel on good milk and where we're going now. What's your, what's your deal? <laughs> what, what do you bring to the table other than? Yeah. yeah Cause it is a two way street, right? I <laughs> mean, when you are raising money. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at this stage, I think it is so much about the network. Um, And I like I'm a transplant to LA, came to LA, didn't really know anyone when I started my business, didn't have connections, um, which is fine and great. But um, if you can bring on some people around you or surround yourself with a network that does have connections, whether it's, you know, distribution, PR, influencer connections um, at this stage in the company, all of those little things make a difference. Yeah, getting into that ecosystem. I mean, whatever city you're in, there are startups, there's investors in all these big markets, obviously. And even if you're not in the market, if I look, there's one person who was on recently, uh, Jesse Chef from Easy Up, and he just went super hard on Twitter to just start making those connections and start responding to people, start you know, retweeting, whatever. Like, there's a way if you're an entrepreneur and you you want to raise, raise money for your company, like there's definitely a way to get in. Uh, it takes time. And I've heard that repeatedly from these entrepreneurs I've had on the show, um, but it's it's possible really wherever you are, but especially if you're in a, a market like LA, if you're in a market like SF, New York, Austin, et cetera, where they have pretty big startup communities, like you just get started by start meeting some people and that lead, those lead to other people 
who leads to other people yeah. and it kind of can snowball from there. And, and then with that second round of funding, then I know you, you had gotten to a point where the product was good. You had more of the vision of what you want on that side of things. What was then the kind of use of funds? What went on after that second round of funding, how that evolved the business? Yeah, that use of funds was to like, okay, let's shed some of the stuff that like we are doing that's not scalable. So kind of get us out of that fear state of letting go of sales. You know, not all, we were in a phase where not all sales are equal um, <laughs> and focusing on really what are the scalable pieces of the business. Um, you know, adding on some team members, we were, we still are very lean, um, but we were in- incredibly lean um, early days and needed to bring in, bring in some help. It allowed us to scale up. I, I told you before, um, when we were speaking that we manufacture everything, which is adds a really fun layer of work <laughs> to all of it. Um, it allowed us to scale up our manufacturing facility um, and really just put us on the path to scaling outside of LA for the very first time. So we launched with some partners in New York. We started to look at San Francisco. We expanded even more to all of Southern California, um, launched direct-to-consumer online. So we're able to ship um nationally frozen products. And then we started R&D with our powdered product, which you will find online, um, which we're really excited about the future of that. Um, That was a big deal. Wanted to make um, a powdered product for many reasons, all of them, I'm sure you can imagine, you know, the (laughs) the, um, not frozen part of it. (laughs) Oh, that thing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I looked on the market like and like a silly founder would was like, oh, cool. There's nothing like this. That must mean we should make it. And turns out there's there was nothing like it because it's really hard to make a clean ingredient um, milk powder. So a lot of them have maltodextrin or some kind of other additive or pretty much all of them do. And, you know, I was adamant about not adding anything. And um, it just took much more work than we thought it was going to. It took about 10 months of R&D and many moments of us thinking and being told that it wasn't possible to do um, until we actually some learnings we had from our frozen process helped and we finally figured it out. And so we launched that powdered product last June. It was was a year this past June. and that's been really fun. And we're still, you know, in this process of scaling that up, trying to figure out what the right equipment is and the bigger processes to scale that because it is a very unique process in order to get this clean ingredient powdered product. Yeah, that seems like such a huge challenge. I mean, the manufacturing in-house and then on top of that, a product that no one's doing because it is so difficult to do. <laughs> and you're like, let's let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we've seen... It's been really interesting with COVID. Um, certainly, I'm in this bubble where these these conversations about wellness and real food are, are happening all the time, but we've seen them happening even faster in a wider range of circles since COVID has hit. And I really do think that this wave of, um, you know, better for you or best in class plant-based products is, is coming quick. Um, you know, we kind of currently have the plant-based products on the market that it's like, okay, plant-based is a newer thing. Here's plant-based products that kind of try and taste like they're, you know, the thing that they're replacing and don't really worry so much about the ingredients. I think that the, the time there was a time and a need for that. And I think the time and need for the next evolution, which is plant-based products that 
do taste really good and are really healthy and beneficial <laughs> for the consumer, I think that time is coming very quickly. Well, it is just so interesting the psychology behind that, where someone's like, "It's plant based; it has to be healthy." Right? You know, like it's it's they're like, "Oh, well, it's not meat, so it's it's just healthy for you." But like, yeah. what's actually what's actually in that? Um, even look at yeah, some of these products out there, you're just like, "Why are there a thousand ingredients? And what what are these things in this?" Like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand how this is automatically healthier. And I come from uh, an exercise sports science background in college and uh, went through like precision nutrition certification, all that as my background. So I'm very aware of some of these things. And uh, it's just crazy. The amount of like knowledge is just like, oh, okay, that's plants. It's healthy. But there's a lot of educational components that seems like that goes into this uh, with your product as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable. And it's a really heartbreaking thing for me to see because it was the similar journey I was down where I just assumed because it was plant-based, it was healthy and spent, you know, a few years being really frustrated over my health and not understanding the most important thing I was doing every day, which was feeding myself, really not knowing how that worked or how these ingredients worked or how to read labels. Um, and it, when you have the knowledge, it's a really simple thing. Um, other than the fact that it's really frustrating because then it's hard to find things that are convenient that are made from whole foods. Yeah, that's such a tricky thing. And then, and and for you guys, then so as you've evolved, as you've grown as a company, you raised funding as well, and now you have this e-commerce offering as well. I mean, how has the customer acquisition side of it, distribution side of it, kind of evolved and changed? Like, what does it look like today for you? Yeah. So it, today, this day, it, this exact day, <laughs> September eighteenth, twenty twenty, when we're recording this. Yeah, what does it look like? <laughs> yes, it looks different than I. If you had asked me in January how September eighteenth, twenty twenty was going to look, um, <laughs> so we had big plans. Um, like I told you, that B two B channel had been really good to us. You know, the cafes, the restaurants, the hotels, and we had some really big plans for this year to focus, really focus and expand that channel first before diving hardcore in a direct-to-consumer or grocery, even though, you know, we're a food product, both of those channels are very important to us. But we're like, look, we have this great opportunity in this B2B channel. Let's focus. You know, we want to remain efficient, effective, a small team. Let's focus on this channel, grow this to a really beautiful place by the end of the year. And then we can use some of the money from from those profits to build our direct-to-consumer channel. And then we'll dive into grocery, which is a very, very expensive channel to get into. And all of that made sense in January. Um, it sounded like a great plan. We were going to have a really great 2020. Um, and then March 15th came and <laughs> all of our coffee shop partners shut down completely. Um, yeah. And so our revenue changed, changed overnight. Um, and our plan had to change overnight. And we were really, really lucky in that we had built this community. We had built this brand recognition through our partners um, that the people who were going to coffee shops came online and started buying our products within 48 hours. We did nothing different um, wow. and our sales shot up online. And so we've spent the past six months just really leaning into that Um which has been fun. Um, it's been a really fun opportunity and it's been, I'm grateful for the chance to be able to focus on it because now that we are doing it, it's just like, whoa, this is a massive undertaking and it's a, it's a whole different way of thinking about business. Um, so direct to consumer has become a really important channel for us. B2B is, you know, still alive. We have partners who have opened back up. Everyone's doing, um, 
you know, way less business than they were doing pre-COVID, but we're hopeful that it will get back to, I guess, normal to use that word. (laughs) Normal. What is is that, Brooke? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the B2B channel is happening. We're out. We're supporting our partners. We're growing. It's just a lot slower than what we had planned for the year. Um, But we've been able to do some really exciting things in direct to consumer. It's allowed us to launch a cool new product that we wouldn't have launched if we weren't um, focusing on this channel, our super oat milk. It's allowed a real direct connection with our community and allowed us to think how we build out that community online. So really grateful to have that channel and have had that opportunity um, and excited to see where that goes. On that note, Brooke, with the, the product itself, I mean, take me through how you're looking at how you're viewing new products versus evolving current products, uh, what that might be. Because I know you mentioned the, the R&D and the tremendous amount of time and effort that went into a new product before. Like, How are you looking at that kind of today? And how do you decide on new products or do you want to offer new ones? I'm just curious on how you think about everything with, with the product yeah. So we, you know, now that we have our formats and how to make those formats dialed in, the the R and D gets a lot easier. Um, although the R and D for our the product we just released, our super oat milk, did take quite a while because we were just trying to find the right mashup of ingredients um, for the oat milk to make it really nutrient and dense through just using real foods. Yeah. Um, but I have literally um, the pipeline of products that we. W- we have lined up that we have, you know, different flavors, different formats um, for is pretty intense. Um, It's something (laughs) that I really love. And actually the team loves to get involved into and and always has some some great ideas of how our product can be used. So we have a pretty um, long lineup of products. We're just waiting, you know, to figure out the right timing to launch them. But as a small business trying to be efficient, it it, it definitely comes down to timing. There's a pretty big cost to launching a SKU or launching a product. And so that's something that we have to factor in. Um, and with a lot of the the products that we launch, we, we kind of like to hedge our bets with some demand first. So we're launching single serves of our powdered product, but we're not launching that just because we wanted single serves out there. We found a, a hotel partner first who yeah. wanted them in all of their hotels. So we were able to say, hey, there's a demand for this amount. We know that we can sell this amount of a larger packaging run of them. And that's where it makes sense. Okay, this product is the next product that launches because there's demand for it. And we know in our community, there will also be demand for it. What a what a crazy journey on, on, on the product side of it too. Uh, just thinking through this COVID thing and then adapting to go online and everything that you've kind of gone through. Uh, it's it's a lot. One of the things that's uh, always mentioned that I haven't d- dug into yet, I want to talk about is the team. So you started this this company, and how have you grown your team since? What's been the the approach? I know you you stayed lean on that side, but take me through building your team for Good Milk. Yeah, we definitely still have a very lean team. We we all kind of wear um, a, a few hats, um, even though it's a bit more dialed in now. But um, our operations and logistics team was kind of the most important early days to get set up and squared away. They're the foundation of the company when you are manufacturing a product. Um, and that team just, they kind of run themselves and to be you know, completely honest, my husband has come on to run operations, which was like, just like a moment of relief for me after we figured out how to work together. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but he runs operations and I barely have to have an eye on it. Cause you can imagine before I, I was running that and the marketing and the sales. And it, it's just, if something goes wrong in a day of operations, you've lost any other plans that you have for the day. Like you have to focus on, on ops to make that happen. So um, my husband runs operations and that team, and they are just definitely the backbone of the company. They are, you know, all these crazy ideas that I have and that our sales team has, they just make them happen um, with as little complaining as possible. Um, so that was really important, kind of with that first raise to really set a really strong foundation with operations um, and logistics. On the sales side, we are still a really small team. We have one salesperson who's amazing. She's been with me for a few years. Between her and I, we handle all of the sales. Um, we have a VP of finance who's amazing. And at this stage, especially when you start fundraising, you definitely need someone in-house who has a really clear grasp on your financials. And like the poor girl, every other week I'm asking for a different model to see a different scenario. And, you know, especially yeah. with COVID, we we are looking at those numbers almost daily to just make sure that we're hitting every single number that we've projected is, is hitting correctly. And if not, you have to adjust. Um, so that was a really important hire and she's newer. She's, she's come on in the past year. Um, and then we, we have a couple of team members that are kind of like, you know, kind of the, the multi multi tool that <laughs> with anything and everything. And um, that's always a huge lifesaver. Everyone, especially at a, a, a smaller startup, I mean, it's just so important. Every single hire is critical, and you know, talking to these different founders and that founding team. And there's a number of people I forgot who just mentioned recently, but mentioned how they would hire an HR person sooner in the business, mm -hmm. uh, even though it's not directly leading to revenue necessarily. That the importance of having the right people in the seats. I mean, it's just so it's so valuable for for companies because it's really going to dictate your culture. It's going to dictate uh, how you kind of move going forward. And if you don't have the initial people set up right, I mean, it's, it's going to be a headache later on. My gosh, yes, we I've learned so much in the hiring process, and it's it's a really it's hard to hire. Um, but you know what's even harder is firing people. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, that thing. Um, I have learned that lesson. And in those moments of having to let people go that, you know, I really knew early on weren't the right fit, um, not their fault, um, but just weren't the right fit and let them go stay for too long because it's so uncomfortable and so time consuming to rehire. And um, I've learned a lot of lessons in the hiring process to just make sure you really take your time and really know what you're looking for there. Um, and we have a couple tools that help us now. We use um, a tool called um, from this really cool company out of the East Coast called Predictive Index. And it allows you, you know, you can narrow down to your, like who you think your top five potentials are. And then you create a profile with them that's, this is the, you know, skill set, the personality, the cognitive skill set of, um, our ideal hire for this position. And then these candidates can take a test and it tells you very black and white who matches up, like how they rank to what your ideal um, hire is. And I think Ooh. that's incredibly important for the bigger hires um, because sometimes you can think someone in person, you know, is who you're thinking, but behind the scenes, they they can't hide when they take a test, you know, what the, those things come out of, like how they really think, how they work. Um, and it's just led, made the hiring process so much more transparent and easy for us. 
Yeah, that seems so helpful. And any tools that can help with that. I mean, there's a number of startups that are creating companies off of that, off of hiring uh, a company I just interviewed recently, Jordy Hayes from Likewise at HireLikewise.com. They they are doing just creators. They they have a network of just creatives on their platform working with a number of brands. So very specific in that way. There's other companies out there doing uh, things like that as well to make it easier on the hiring front where you can literally get someone you know in in a day or two, yeah. uh, which is pretty impressive to, to kind of see. One of the things I want to talk about briefly is just Understand that you're. You, there's a lot of R and D that's gone into this. There's a lot behind the product and making it high quality. But one of the things people are going to wonder is like bigger companies who are in the space or why? What are they? What, what are they doing? How do you look at competition? Uh, how do you view that as you've gone along with with this company so far? Do you mean like competition? Worrying about competition, kind of taking our formats and ideas. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really worry about the, the bigger guys doing that. Um, you know, I kind of say internally, like our only competition is ignorance. So that's why we put such an emphasis on educating people about our products. Um, as far as the plant-based milks on the market, there there is nothing similar. And a lot of that reason is because one, the way we do it is, is really hard. Uh, um, <laughs> and two, it's way more expensive. Um, so you'll see some of that reflected in our product cost, but our margins are probably different than a lot of these bigger companies. You know, if you look at, if you look at any of the almond milks that have one gram of protein per serving, that means they use one to three almonds per cup of their almond milk. We use six times the almond, (laughs) about 24 almonds per cup. We use real whole almonds, soak and sprout them. Most of the the almond milk companies out there are starting with a paste that then they have to to emulsify into a liquid. And that's why they have to add, add the thickeners and binders so that it turns into some kind of like liquid that looks like milk. Oh. <laughs> um, the processing is incredibly different. Um, I don't think that you know we are still talking to a niche market of people who really have to care about their health and the quality of foods they're putting in their bodies. And while that market is growing, I don't think that the work and the effort is going to be enough for these bigger guys to to take a look at what they're doing and change. And then they would have to admit too that all of their other products that they have are not this high quality, um, you know, better for you product that they're marketing it to be right now. <laughs> yeah, how do you market one product that's just better and healthier when they have all these other products that just doesn't doesn't work? And that's something to be said for uh, it's probably a business school thing I've learned. But uh, companies who are how you can compete with these bigger companies, it, it is tough for them to steer into a niche like this potentially uh, because it oftentimes takes the entire company doing something to really make it actually work. Which yeah. is then here we have good milk thriving. Yes. Um, one of the things I always want to ask about is is books. Have there been any particular books, whether it be business or personal, that have just been impactful in your life, Brooke? Yeah, um, that's a great question. There's a couple marketing books that I have like highlighted every other word on the page. <laughs> Definitely um, Purple Cow. I'm sure you've heard of that one. Yeah, Seth Godin. Uh, yes, Seth. I that's my favorite of his books. Um, I've read a few others. Anything by him, I would go for. Crossing the Chasm is a really good one. Um, and I, I'm kind of a, like, you know, at, at the risk of sounding lame, like my hobby or my passion is nutrition and wellness and, you know, the 
talking about the system of food and how it gets grown and made and how all of that contributes to human health and planetary health. So those are the books I kind of geek out on, even though they, they do help my business indirectly and help educate me about my business indirectly. Um, but um, anything by Mark Hyman, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Not super familiar now. Okay, he's um, he's become one of my favorites as far as talking about um, his latest book, Food Fix, is one that I've read and like passed on to all of my team to read. And he just talks about the systemic issues of the food system, the farming system, the how politics plays into it. Um, it's incredibly interesting, heartbreaking, motivational. <laughs> um, all the things. All of the things, um, and it's. It, you know, it's something, like I said, it doesn't necessarily directly, it's not directly a business book, but it helps inspire me and in the decisions that I make for our business, um, you know, and wanting to have a positive impact on the food system in general. Yeah. And anything that goes to, yeah, making the founder better, <laughs> mental health is a huge part of it uh, as a founder, especially. So anything that kind of contributes to you feeling good, you, you moving forward, learning, growing, et cetera, is, is worthwhile, worthy investment. And, and real quick before uh, our kind of last question, I'm just curious as to how do you recharge away from work, Brooke? Yeah, that's a great question that I am still trying to figure out to be completely honest and transparent. Um, as yeah. a small business owner, you're kind of in hyperdrive all the time. And it's like any minute spent thinking about something that isn't the business feels like a minute wasted. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because there's just so much to think about with the business. And at the end of the day, I love my business so much that, you know, 90% of the time that is what I prefer to do is to be thinking about and working on the business. Um, but I, I am a big podcaster. Like I, I love to listen to, to podcasts and I love, this is going to sound really cheesy, but I love like true crime. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when you're doing some housework or cooking dinner or something, it's just a way for me to kind of like feel like I can shut off my brain and, um, give it a rest for a little bit. Um, but I'm a huge animal person, love anything outdoors. We have a few pet, we have a dog and, and um, two pet bunnies. So love to spend time with them, playing with them. And um, it's a good distraction and just makes you realize the things that are important in life. Absolutely. And where can people go to learn more about Good Milk and get in touch with you if they want as well? Yeah. So Good Milk, G-O-O-D-M-Y-L-K dot C-O is our website. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter there. And we send a lot of educational information out through our newsletters, not just on our product and plant-based milk, but just on, you know, kind of what we call the good milk lifestyle, the things we care about, real food, sustainability, um, health in general. Um, so I would say definitely sign up for our newsletter. We're also very active on Instagram at Good Milk Co. Um, and I often hop on there a lot to just chime in on stuff and, and tell fun, long-winded stories. Um, <laughs> so, Love that. <laughs> yeah, both of those places you can um, find kind of everything you need to know about Good Milk. Perfect. And I'll be sure to link that up as well in the show notes, just go grind.com slash podcast. Brooke, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you. It was lovely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. 
The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.